Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we'll be talking about how to handle conflict with clients and maybe even avoid those conflicts to begin with. Here with me, as usual, is Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I am Ruben Lerner. And we often say on this show that if you're going to freelance, you cannot just be a subject matter expert, right? You can't just be a great programmer, graphic designer, whatever it is. You're also running a business. And if you're running a business, then you're dealing with other companies and customers. If you're doing that, things will sometimes go wrong. In fact, they'll often go wrong. In fact, there's no way for them to avoid going wrong. I remember when I started my business, my first accountant said to me, boy, if I had all the money that I'd lost through conflict with clients and making mistakes, I would be a very, very wealthy man now. And 30 years later, huh, I sort of know what he's talking about. So Eric, let me ask a simple softball startup question here, which is, how do these conflicts happen? I think they can come from a lot of sources, but I would say I generalize it and I'm open to being proved wrong about this, but I think the overwhelming majority of them would come from misaligned expectations of some kind or another. The client expects you to do something and you don't do it. You don't know that they're expecting it. You expect them to behave in a certain way or provide certain deliverables up front and they don't do it. I think the overwhelming majority of conflicts do arise from this misalignment And basically, it becomes a matter of like, how do you handle such things? I don't know. Can you think of situations maybe that aren't like that? I mean, I guess there are some outliers where the conflict comes up because you have a client and a client contact that's just like an awful person that's in a bad mood one day. I think things can happen like that, but I think it's usually a matter of expectations. I think that's spot on. Absolutely 100% spot on. Thinking back to the various problems I've had with clients over the years, If it's anything less than 95%, and I'm guessing it's much closer to 100% of problems, it was those misaligned expectations that I was sure they wanted X, and they were sure they wanted Y, and we were both sure that the other person agreed with our interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. And then when I delivered a product, or when I gave them the software, or I gave them my evaluation, whatever it was, and you know they were stunned to see what I had done, it was clear that Uh uh-oh, like (laughs) one of us didn't express our ideas clearly enough and now we're both stuck. And that's really, really, like, look, you go into a service business, not just because you want to make money, but because you actually want to help other people. And so I always feel like this pit in my stomach, not just of, "Uh oh, someone's upset with me or I've got a client who maybe doesn't want to pay, but I let them down. I wanted to help them and I didn't do it. Yeah, I can very much relate to that. And it's not like I can't, my brain would go beyond, I've let them down. And am I ruined in this industry? Is my reputation forever damaged? They're going to go say bad things about me. They're going to leave a bad review on Google reviews or something like that. It's easy to get into a pretty big state of panic. I guess like depending on your personality, maybe some people are more impervious to this kind of thing. But like, I've always reacted over the years to any client conflicts that would come up with a lot of angst. Like, I've disappointed them. I've done something wrong. How did we get here, et cetera? And I think a lot of times, at least for me, that's probably because there's generally been a nugget of rightness, if not more, for the client where we didn't have the same expectations. And they're like, hey, this is a problem. And I look at it and I realize it's a problem. 
And my defensive reaction would be like, I never said I was going to do that. But like the reality is whether I said that or not, whatever we agreed to, they have a problem. And so then that's the sinking feeling in your stomach. Like however defensive I might be, they have a problem. This is a poor reflection on me. Like it's easy to go to, especially the first times out of the gate that this might happen to you to go to worried place. Absolutely. And the longer I'm in this industry, the longer I do it, the more of these sorts of problems, A, I'm, I think I'm smarter about preventing, but B, they don't rattle me quite as much. Yeah. I've gotten that external perspective. To her credit, my wife often has that because she is external. So very often when I've come back and sort of reported to her about clients, she'll be like, you don't want to work with them. They sound really bad. You've been this route before and they're going to cause you trouble. On the other hand, I do remember very, very clearly coming back from almost signing agreement with this huge company. It was going to be a big deal. And she said, just remember, every client relationship ends. And this might seem amazing and wonderful, but it will at some point end. And sure enough, a year later, it ended. And I couldn't stop thinking back to the fact that, oh yeah, she sort of predicted this because that's just the nature of things. And so it can end well or it can end poorly. In that case, it actually ended very well. But taking that into account, it was very helpful. It gave me some perspective even while I was doing the engagement with the client. You know, mentioning the idea of, say, your wife telling you that's not a client that you want to work with actually just put in my mind another secondary source of conflicts that really doesn't reflect on you as the service provider. And that is when a client creates conflict as a bargaining tactic. So they make a demand for a service or something. You should have done X even though you both know full well you never agreed to that because they're trying to get freebies or they're pushing the value. Or I've even, I can think of over the years having times where something like that might happen where client contact is on the call and like the, the client contact's boss, like the CIO or something is on the call. And so the client is doing some saber rattling to impress his boss or something. So there are times where the client is using conflict as a means to an end. I think of that as maybe a distant second as to what causes conflicts. Have you had experience like that too? You know, I was going to say no, but then I remembered I had this one client where we had some disagreements about what needed to happen and they needed to pay us. And they were like, no, 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 we're not going to pay until you do X and Y and Z. And basically they sort of dragged out of us all sorts of concessions. Mm. And then the manager went to his office and he said, okay, here's the check. It was waiting for you. you know, as soon as you agreed to do the, what I wanted, like it's been waiting here for weeks just until you would sort of, you know, we would beat you into submission. And I was so upset, but I could do nothing. Like he was very good at negotiating, but that was just like despicable behavior and yet not unheard of. Yeah. I don't think that's common, like I said, but I have encountered that too. I think it's been less egregious at times that I've encountered it. It might be something like, I'm just trying to think of in the world of hit subscribe because it's top of mind. Like this is a hypothetical. I don't actually have an example like this, but something like, you know, the average blog post length that we deliver to a client will be between 12 and 1500 words. And the client's, oh, I thought it was going to be a 2000 word blog post. And I don't know that you did. I think you just want a 2000 word blog post. <laughs> right. People will push you like that at times. Yeah. Also, like over the years, what you just said with the blog post and like what works and you know what people really need if they don't want it. And so you've now got enough experience with this, you and I guess your staff also, you can say, well, actually, we've been doing this a while now. We know that X and Y and Z works best. And so I'm also like with my training, generally now able to say to people, I think what you really need, given such and such and such, like you really need this kind of course, and this kind of content. And I can add a little bit more here and there, but I think this is going to work for your needs. Or I'll say, oh yes, I will make sure to have that special content that you want. And then I do my 100% standard course. And they come to me afterwards <laughs> and say, this is exactly what we wanted. Thank you so much for doing what we needed. I'm thinking, okay, sure. 
But like at the end of the day, we're dealing with not just a business and another business. We're dealing with people, right? And people are complicated and people are moody and people can be jerks and people can be greedy. And we also, as freelancers, we don't want to get roped into working more than we have to to earn our keep. And so it's sort of inevitable that with all these different things going on, all these moving parts and you know emotions, that they're going to be problems. And so we can go through a few of our like favorite stories of terrible things, maybe lessons we learned as a result before going into what we've learned and how, <laughs> how we've learned to avoid such problems, because the stories are always fun to tell. Why don't you go first? I mean, I can think of a lot of different sort of conflict examples over the years, but honestly, the most run-of-the-mill types of conflicts are usually kind of imminently forgettable, like somebody's in a bad mood one day or what have you, like conflicts in the moments that I think of as like minor the conflicts that stand out over the long haul of providing services, I think, are the ones that tend to be about like money or scope of deliverables or something. I'm just trying to think of some of the you know more prominent ones over the years. With Hit Subscribe in the business, one thing that's happened on a couple of occasions, this doesn't come up a lot, but given I've lost count of how many clients we've dealt with over the last five years, but sometimes you get something like this that comes up. Have you ever read the book, The No Asshole Rule? No, I've heard the book. I've heard of it, but I haven't actually uh, read it. So he says, I use that term for a reason because it makes people uncomfortable. And we should be very clear that we're talking about somebody who's awful enough to make people uncomfortable. So the gist of this is you shouldn't tolerate that, like the talented jerk as staff, but also you shouldn't tolerate jerks as clients or investors or anything else. That whoever is the source of this kind of thing, the damage to the morale of the staff and the company and everybody involved is just not going to be offset by whatever they're contributing. And we stick to that philosophy with hit subscribe. So I have on, I want to say two occasions, a handled conflict with a client by saying, this is just insulting and I'm not going to let you talk to the staff this way. Like, you know, I'm sorry, we can make some recommendations. So those are, I don't know if I'd call it horror stories. It's certainly unpleasant in the moment as it's going on to say like, you're unpleasant enough that I don't want your money. So that's one. I think I want to say I've had that happen twice over the years. Prior to that, especially when I was doing more short-term consulting, management consulting, if things like that had come up or if they had come up when I was just like creating content or someone as a you know one-time-for-pay thing, I would just say, here's your money back, bye. I can remember doing stuff like that with people that were like, oh, I'd pay you to write a post for my blog and then I'd do that and they'd start nitpicking with me about stuff and I'd be like, this isn't worth it. But I think that's a little bit of a different thing than the, you know, you're so toxic that I won't deal with you. But those are two examples that kind of come to mind of conflict where like we parted ways. Right. So you've got the the terrible people, right? So that I think we can all agree, like <laughs> definitely stay away from terrible people. That's our uh, genius advice here on this podcast. And then we've got the people who just won't pay you. And sometimes they won't pay you because they are jerks. And a lot of times it's going to be because you just disagree on what the scope of work was and it was poorly defined or one of you is holding out. So I've definitely had, back when I was doing a lot of web development and such things, numerous clients, typically small operations or people who are non-technical who would say, oh, but I described to you exactly what I wanted and you did not do what I wanted. Thus, I do not have to pay you until you do exactly what I wanted. 
Those were also the people who would then say, what? It cost me this? And we would say, yeah, that's we did what you wanted. Well, yeah, this is what I wanted. Well, it's not really what I wanted, but I'll be willing to compromise. But no way am I paying you that. And then you just sort of roll your eyes. And then it becomes a new negotiation over the pricing afterwards. And I went through that a lot. In fact, one of the reasons why I went and did a PhD was because I spoke to a management professor who's a friend of my family. And I said to him, I'm having all these problems. All these projects are just ending poorly and I'm getting burned out by it. He said, okay, you need a break and, you know, a good thing to do would maybe go back to school and get a new perspective on things. And he was right in many ways. But I also think it had to do with how I was being paid, how I was negotiating it up front, how the contract was stated, the sorts of clients I was finding. Like, if you work with cheapskates, then they are going to be cheapskates. And no matter what you do, they're going to complain and they're going to find a way to nickel and dime you down from what originally was supposed to be. And that was partly my fault as well, because in those days, I was doing everything, you know, with hourly. And so I would give them an estimate and I would say, well, this will take between 20 and 40 hours. And they would see that as 20. And if it went over 20, they'd be incensed, exactly as Jonathan Stark and others have pointed out over the years about how hourly billing works. So the money stuff is like another sort of conflict that can come up, I guess. You must have had that at some point. Or were you luckier than I was? (laughs) Not a lot. So if I think of the sources of conflict with clients, the most common ones that I'd categorize have been things like the rules of engagement up front. So I could certainly talk about some conflicts over contract, not with the enforcement, like once the contracts were in place, but with hit subscribe. One of the biggest things that I find myself in a light form of conflict with is arguing with like clients legal and stuff. Money is another big one. Scope, but usually so with hourly billing, Scope is sort of after the fact, like, well, you know, I provided this estimate, then it goes past the estimate. That's when all the arguing starts. Well, you should have done this. How are you spending your time? So like scope, money, contract, rules of engagements. I mean, there can be some like interpersonal conflicts like along the way of the collaboration. I don't think I've had a lot over money, although I can remember conflict in the sense of where clients get really late paying. Like I remember Mm -hmm. taking on some work early on when I was on my own where the client was running up a bill with me that was well into the five figures, probably like $20,000, $30,000. And they were like, I don't know, two, three months late. And I did eventually get paid. It was a fairly like a mid-market international corporation. They weren't going to stiff me. It was just there was a lot of bureaucracy in getting paid. And so that's a kind of conflict where you perceive it as a serious conflict. Everybody on the client side is kind of like, eh, what do you mean conflict? It was fine. We were a little late. I haven't had a lot of arguments over the bill, so to speak. I think a lot of that is because when I was doing any form of hourly work, it was often subcontracted and relatively short in duration and or with people I had prior relationships and trusted. I never historically had a lot of hourly agency style work of like custom app dev for people I didn't know. More common for me was consulting where I was like, for $20,000, I'll come out, do X, Y, and Z on the deliverable front. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you talk about conflict, putting all that up front tends to front load the conflict. And I would argue that's great because nobody's committed any money or time yet at that point. So if the argument becomes too much, you just part ways and no harm. But yeah, any conflict I've had historically over money or the bill has mostly been, hey, when are you going to pay me? I can't think of too much arguing over how much I should actually be paid. I don't think that came up. Yeah, I definitely had it with the hourly, especially like web development and app development sort of stuff or like system administration stuff. All the things that like I estimated and even software development tends to be hard to estimate. 
And so I would estimate as best as I could. I would spend hours thinking about it and sort of, you know, trying to come up with the best analysis. And I was inevitably wrong and wrong for all sorts of reasons. Some of them my fault, some of them the nature of the industry and some of the client piling on additional specs. And I didn't quite know how to handle that either. And then I'd go to them and they'd say, oh, you know, but like things have changed dramatically with me going to training because now it's a totally different animal. It's coming in and offering a product. The worst case scenario is they'll hate the course. And once that actually did happen, I was once teaching a class and it was packed, 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 packed in the room. I was doing it through a training company at that time. So I really didn't have an ability to set limits. And they came to me at lunch. So it was supposed to be a three-day class. If I remember correctly, it was a Postgres class. And they came to me at lunch and said, listen, no, it's going a little slow. Would you mind speeding it up a little bit? And so like after lunch, I sped it up a bit, you know, not a lot, but a bit. And I left. And as I was walking out of the parking lot, maybe going to the bus stop, I get a call from the training company saying, yeah, they don't want the other two days. This was so terrible. Like they didn't want it. Literally, the only feedback they gave me was at lunch saying you should speed it up a bit. And if only they'd been a little more explicit. Mm. And so that was definitely as far as I was concerned, sort of on them. But I, again, I got this pit in my stomach. I felt horrible. Oh, I've let them down. This is terrible. Exactly what you said, right? I'll never work in this industry again because my reputation is going to get out. And I learned from that, right? Like it was a painful experience, but it was a learning experience to try to set those expectations. And when something milder but similar happened a few years later, I learned that, okay, if I'm going to be teaching a course and it's a new course or if it's at a company I don't know so well, or if we're not sure exactly what the level is, we'll do a survey in advance, right? Survey of the people who might be participating. What do you know about? What's your level on? And then at least I can I have some defenses I can use. I can show the company, well, I based it on X and Y and Z that people claim themselves. I only need to do that once or twice. You know, it's useful. But again, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not getting what they wanted was not a fun feeling. Yeah, we could talk later about more like tactics and solutioning. But one thing that strikes me, if I can think of over the years, and I've been party to a lot of different kinds of engagements. So like, you know, with Hit Subscribe, we're a productized service at scale. So it's not like I'm writing the blog post or doing much of the day-to-day work anymore. I still sometimes interact with the clients about things. But so I've seen it running the show. I've seen it as an individual consultant working with clients. I used to sometimes be in positions in subcontract work where I'd run a team for a while. So there's a lot of different ways that conflict arises, but like I was thinking of one of the sources, whether it's your training, whether it's blog posts, whether it's like a code deliverable or like a website, whatever it may be, one of the most common sources of what I'll call client conflict rather than on your side would be the idea of quality, let's say. So if you start out and the client says something like, I want you to build me like a good quality website, I think that's something a lot of us proceed with an assumed understanding that we both mean the same thing by that subjective term. And so at the end of that, they can come back and say, this is a terrible website. And you're saying, you know, what do you mean? I have a robust unit test suite. I hit this <laughs> smoke testing in the whole nine yards. And like, there are no bugs here. And they're like, no, I mean, it doesn't look good. Like you could be operating with entirely different definitions of terms like that. So I think one important source of conflict and then way to avoid it, like I was kind of keying off your story with doing a survey in the beginning is to like establish KPIs and like measure what it is you're going to deliver. So if I'm delivering a website and your goal for it is, I want to like it, I'd say, whoa, I... (laughs) Hopefully you like it, but I don't know how to measure that short of delivering you a website and asking if you like it versus if you're saying, oh, I want to increase the amount of orders we get into the business by 50%. Like we can measure that and try to like get at it, I guess. 
So I guess I'm getting at the source of conflict. And again, this goes back to the misaligned expectations would be like subjectivity or like qualitative assessments. That's a red flag. I think when you're engaging with clients and like a conflict waiting to happen is when you're using, you know, like I want it to be good or I want this to be high quality or I want it to like, you know, maybe it's something that could be measurable, but without any framework for measurement, like I want to improve X, like, well, by how much, like, you know, what do you mean by that? Right. So I think that can come up a lot when you think you're operating with the same definition of a word or the same criteria. And then later you learn that you aren't. I love that. I love that. You know, I was just looking, a friend of ours is looking for a job and she asked me to look over her resume. And I was like, you say that you manage these three different places. Can you tell me, like, what did you improve? And she came back, and I'm no resume expert. But suddenly, every job that she had in the last few years, she said, I increased revenue by this percentage. I increased, like, attendance by that percentage. And it stood out so much. Oh, this is something measurable. It's something tangible. And so, yeah, if you have that sort of thing with your client, everyone's going to feel good about that, that we have some way to measure that we're on the same page as opposed to, oh my God, I've so been there. I like it. I don't like it. But you said you were going to do something. Uh, I mean, like on, 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 and on. I was the also like another source of conflict is just like completely out of left field, like completely misaligned expectations. And this especially I found is true when you are a technology specialist. And the people you're dealing with have no idea about technology and they don't understand what is and is not important. I guess this was probably like four or five years ago already. There was this travel agency that was actually like a conference management agency that called me in to fix up their software. Why? Because they had something written. At the time, I was doing a lot of Ruby on Rails. They had something written in Rails probably 10 years ago. I don't know. Anyway, they had something written in Rails and the programmer had abandoned them. So they needed someone to fix up their software and get it to work. Okay. Um, fine. So I went in and I had an employee at the time and we started talking to them. And we're having, I would say, not a great conversation, but a good conversation. And then they said something about credit card numbers. We are like, well, what do you mean? What's wrong? And they said, oh, we can't easily get them out of our database. Anyway, they start making it clear that everyone's credit card numbers are in the actual database in clear text. And I said, <laughs> okay, stop right here. Like, <laughs> did you really mean that? Oh, yes. Why is there a problem? I said, yeah, yeah, it's a big problem. Like, we've got to stop that now. <laughs> And they said, no, 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 we don't think it's a problem. I said, okay, then we're not working with you. I will not be held responsible for you being shut down by your credit card company or anything else. And they were stunned. And we were stunned. Like, everyone was stunned. They didn't think it was a big deal and couldn't believe that we make a big deal out of it. Mm. And we couldn't believe that they weren't listening to us as the actual knowledgeable people on this. I mean, I should have said, call your lawyer and see what they say. That would have been a smarter move. But instead, I said, no way, no how. And that was it. That was the end of the engagement, basically. And really, it was a, such a shocking surprise that never entered into any of our discussions because we assumed this would never happen. Like, we didn't even think to ask, and they didn't think to tell us. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a kind of category, like, you know, you blunder into the deal breaker, I guess. I'm trying to think if I've blown anything up. Like, I think I've hit stuff like that on, like, prospect calls where they're asking for something I think of a couple of years ago, I was asked to do something illegal, for instance, on a prospect call, where if we had already been engaged with that person, I would have, you know, said, whoa, I, no, I'm not doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think this would come up a lot for, especially if you're doing like freelance application development, you know, it's probably not as common in training or content creation, but if you're doing freelance application development, there's probably all sorts of things you might run across that clients are doing. Oh, you know what does come up that we tend to turn down? I don't know if we'd end a relationship over it. We just wouldn't do it. But it's pretty common 
for companies to come to us, hit subscribe and say, can you broker or somehow create a situation where like your authors publish on their sites, like a review of our product? And my response to that is we can ask them, but they have to disclose that, you know, that there's like a financial arrangement for this. And they're like, yeah, but we want to do that, but where we don't disclose it. (laughs) And so for those of you listening that aren't versed in that kind of thing, that's very much illegal. I think it's the FCC would. Oh, is it illegal? I knew it was unethical. I didn't realize it was illegal, actually. Yeah. So at least in the U.S., if you have any kind of financial arrangement related to content, you have to disclose that relationship. So like for any of you listening out there, if somebody comes along and says, hey, I want to pay you like $1,000 to write about how great our product is, but I don't want you to make any mention that we did that. Technically, that's illegal. You could get into some like civil trouble. I mean, it's not like nobody's going to lock you up, but like that's a FCC violation, I believe. It's like a truth in advertising kind of thing because that's a de facto advertisement, except now you're Mm -hmm. advertising, but you're not disclosing that relationship. And that's why. And if you think about it, like on the consumption side, that would be pretty awful. Imagine you think you're on somebody's blog reading about how they like some product and then you later learn, oh, that company paid them to say that. Yeah, I'm trying to think over the last few years, basically, I'll tell you a good thing that I've discovered is I now work with mostly big companies, not all, but mostly And they have processes for everything. And it might be frustrating and annoying and bureaucratic, but things get done. And it's very rare to have something totally crazy come up or at least surprise you after you've had an agreement. Everyone sort of is on the same page. Everyone agrees what needs to be done. It might be slow and annoying and bureaucratic, but nothing's going to jump out. So I really haven't had too many terrible client conflicts over the last few years. I did have one just recently. I don't know if I call it a conflict so much. But this company contacted me a few months ago. They wanted me to do Git training. I said, okay, great. You know, I do that all the time. Uh, that's a two-day class. He said, oh, no, 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 no. We can't do two days. Like, and I said, I can do it in one day. I'll tell you, I did it for a company a few years ago. And as I warned them, no one understood it. And they called me in twice more that year to teach their people again over two days because they didn't absorb in one day. He was like, no, no, no. We'll just do one day. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take no breaks except half an hour for lunch, and we'll go for 10 hours, and that way we'll cover everything we need to. I said, look, I will take your money. I mean, I didn't put it quite that crassly, but the human mind does not really work that way. So I don't think people absorb information that way. He was like, okay, fine, whatever. He said, oh, and by the way, two of the people on my team really hate Git. So you're also going to have to teach them why it's so great and why they should go along with the rest of the team and not like ignore pull requests. I said, okay, I don't know if I can do that, but I'll do my best to make it seem good. And I said, so you got a classroom, right? He said, what do you mean by classroom? I said, like, if I'm going to come on site, I'm going to need to teach, right? He said, well, where are they going to have their computers? I said, they're going to bring their laptops. He said, what? Do you think we're a fancy startup where everyone has laptops? No, their computers are in their offices. So they'll listen to you lecture, then they'll go to their offices, do the exercises, and they'll come back. I was like, oh my God. You've got to be kidding me. So we went through like months of back and forth, like everything getting bad. And people were telling me, do not work with this guy, giving you this sort of hell before you have the course. So I basically agreed to do it. And because of the pandemic, I said, fine, we're doing it remote on Zoom. And he said, but you told me under no circumstances could we do this remotely. I said, we're doing it remotely. I'm not going to get sick. And so in the end, it was surprisingly wonderful. We had a great day. I could not believe it. So this is like one of those rare cases where all the conflict happens up front. And the only minor hitch was that he sent me an email yesterday, a few days after the course, week or two after the course. Hey, I have this question. And it was clear, like, he hadn't absorbed the information I taught him because otherwise he would have understood the answer to his question. But like, you know, point made. So fine, I answered his question. So like these things can work out well, but 
all of my experience. So I kept telling my family for a week, oh, I got the crazy client on Sunday, got the crazy client on Sunday. And then on Sunday, actually, it was okay. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Think about front-loading all the conflict and how much better that potentially makes things because you can go your separate ways or you can engage having hashed it all out up front. But I, I got to imagine for a lot of people, the idea of front-loading conflict, especially if you're a newbie freelancer, is scary because it's almost like you're doing your best not to close a sale. So I think one thing I'd say to people listening out there is, in a sense, it's almost like your poison. So if you're worried that you're going to lose a sale, if you don't do everything in your power to appease the client, yeah, you'll probably be more likely to make that sale, but you could be signing up for some pretty awful stuff down the line. So like, I don't mean to make that sound fatalistic, more to say, like, there is a very real potential price to be paid for conflict avoidance during the prospect and onboarding. And I think that you can mitigate that sort of thing, too. Like, if you present things as this is how I work. So, like, Reuven, in your case, like, I do training and it's, say, for three to five days. That's just the window I do. It has to be on site. It has to be laptops in class, et cetera. Like, presenting things confidently that way as this is the way I do it. This is the way I've done it. This is the way that works. For those of you listening, that confident presentation, even when the client doesn't like it, it hits differently than if they bring it up like, oh, so you're going to come in, right, and do it on site. No, if you're just establishing like the ground rules. So one thing I would encourage you to do, is, even if you're worried about this, like, if you establish like, this is how I work, I do A, B, C, D, I get paid at this time, I, you know, they can push back in the call and you can kind of in the moment opt for what to give in on what not to. But like, I would definitely stake out as many things as possible up front because if you just say, hey, I'll do whatever you want for whatever kind of terms, like they're going to hold you to that. hundred percent. When I send out proposals to companies, and usually it's after we've had some phone calls and everything. So I say explicitly in the email, I expect to have a projector or large screen to which I can connect my computer. I expect to have internet access while I'm there. I expect to have a whiteboard. And if you have a cafeteria, then I expect to have a lunch ticket to get lunch there. And so like, what do I get the most pushback on, by the way? The cafeteria thing. Because half of companies are like, duh, of course we'll give you lunch. The other half say, no, it's a conflict of our like anti-bribery policy that we can't <laughs> give you lunch, so you'll have to buy it. And I'm like, fine, whatever. But, but as you say, they push back. But me coming in and saying, these are my standard terms, it looks good. It looks good and professional. Yeah. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm just, oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. So looking at the pre-show notes here, I guess the question is, here are some examples of conflicts we've talked about, the things that we've experienced or whatever. But like, in your opinion, Reuven, how do you know if a conflict is like a deal breaker versus if a relationship is salvageable? I mean, like, if it's, you know, arguing over whether or not to get paid or something, obviously the answer is clear, but because conflicts come up and I don't necessarily mean like, it's kind of a different thing. If you have a prospect that you're talking to and you say, this is how I work and they find that unacceptable. There's nothing to be salvaged. That's just we're not a fit. But like if during onboarding or like during the delivery, conflicts start coming up, both for training and maybe thinking back to when you're doing custom project days, like how have you over the years determined what is salvageable, what isn't? First of all, I think I'm an eternal optimist. And so it's very hard for me to see that things are not salvageable. It's rare for me to say, no, I'm going to give up with this guy. I'm going to fire them. And yet there were a few cases when I did that. And it was typically when they hadn't paid mm. or when they were stretching things out or when it was clear, like they were just going to push and push. And I just wasn't in the mood for it. I just didn't want to have them say, oh, but you promised you would do. 
A, B, C, D, E, E, O, and also X, Y, Z, like this laundry list that was never ending. Basically, as long as they felt I should keep working, I would. And so in a few of those occasions, I actually hedged. I wouldn't say to them, I want to stop working with you because of this. I would gently say, look, well, first of all, I'd wait for them to pay me. Because I know if I pulled out before they paid me, then I definitely never get paid. Yeah. If I'm getting paid, I'd say, you know what? I don't think this is working out. Why? What's wrong? What's wrong? I'd say, I just don't think it's working out for me. To go into it and basically say, you guys are cheap and demanding jerks, probably will not help anything in any possible way. But there have also been times when I have managed to salvage it, or I working with them. So I had one client that I worked with for years, like I think 10 years even. And we had our ups and downs. Overall, I think things work very well. But there was a period of time when they were just unhappy. And they even called me and they said, listen, we are unhappy. We need to fix this if you're going to keep working with us. And we've even started looking around for someone to replace you. And that was a really startling wake-up call. And we decided to have weekly phone calls after that. And the moment we started having weekly phone calls, all the problems went away. All of them. Because we were constantly in communication. Any little problem, any change in the business, anything I was working on, like we talked about it. And even if it was a 10 minute phone call, it was a sea change. It was fantastic. So do you think that kind of fed back into the expectations discussion? Like by not having calls for a long time, you were getting misaligned? A hundred percent. We were basically assuming that everything could be done just through email and ticket trackers and so forth. At the end of the day, it was helpful for me to talk to the CEO and him to tell me, okay, the business horizon looks like this over the next month, three months, six months. And for me to tell him, we're working on these things and this we can get done right away. And how do you want us to prioritize that? And what do you think? And what's good and what's bad? First of all, I think emotionally, it was good for him to know, yes, we care. We're working on things. And we want to be aligned with your business needs. But second of all, just suddenly it wasn't just this bug fixed, this bug not fixed. It was a more sort of holistic approach. Hmm. I can think of, by the way, a conflict that we had that was solved with bug trackers, where I was working on something. This was many years ago, 15 years ago or more where there was a company where we were doing some development and they were doing some development. And they kept blaming me and my staff for being late and not doing things. And so we put in a ticket tracker and suddenly everyone's things were logged with a timestamp and who had done what when. Poof, problems went away. So again, <laughs> it comes down to communication, documentation, being professional about it, not just sending a lot of email or having a lot of angry phone calls. What do you think? I'm trying to think of like heuristics that I've used over the years for is a relationship salvageable? You know, we had talked about this a little bit, but if they're asking you to do something illegal or unethical, for me, that's a deal breaker. Is this person or, or organization somehow toxic? So I, in advance, have certain, it's not like the most like clearly defined thing, but there are deal breakers for me that I just maintain in my head. And then I think salvageability beyond that becomes a kind of question of one of the things I'll ask a lot is, is this abnormal? Like whatever just came up, is this a client that we've enjoyed working with for the last four years, but suddenly they just randomly had a dispute over something or somebody was having a bad day? Because I think a client can build a lot of goodwill with you and vice versa over the years. And so a big thing I would ask is like, does this seem systemic or not? This isn't as applicable now as our business grows, but for me as a solo consultant, there would be just the kind of like misery index factor. Like is working with this client making me so miserable that I don't feel like finding other business or like otherwise running my business? Like, do I just feel like going down? down to the pub and having a few pints, like to take stock and say, is this affecting not only the relationship, but like my business? I think that's a big one to indicate probably not salvageable. But I like to think most things tend to be salvageable, especially if the existence of a good relationship otherwise has been there. 
And usually it's, you know, as your experience, I think a question of revisiting mutual expectations and kind of saying like, okay, how did we get off kilter here? You know, what's going on? So I tend to think, I guess if I were going to roll it up over the years, most of my problems or conflicts with clients have been of the salvageable variety. Either they're just one-off things or it's something that, you know, with better communication, we can improve. I view them as not salvageable if I'm pretty miserable, if I'm being asked to do something that violates my ethics, that type of thing, if somebody's abusive or toxic. And I shouldn't say like unsalvageable necessarily means like you, that I'm just like, hey, we're done, bye. Usually it means negotiating as quickly as possible towards some breakup. If you have like $10,000 of outstanding receivables, you're not just going to say like, bye, you've got to figure something out. But I more mean just salvageable over the long haul. So that's kind of my take. Yeah, I'm thinking also like there were a few times when I was having some, I don't know if conflict's the right word, but disagreement with potential clients at that point over the agreements with them. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, this is so annoying. Are they going to always be like this? And the answer was no, that basically the conflict was all over the agreement just to like button up the contract and make sure that everyone was on the same page. And I mean, I had one client where they were in the e-commerce space. And I was going to come in twice a week and mentor their programmers. And they said, okay, so as part of the agreement, you will not be allowed to work with any other online commerce company for the next year. And I was like, no, that is (laughs) not, not happening. That was going to restrict my work a lot, like completely. And so we reached an agreement on that, which was like, preposterous in retrospect, where it was like defined to be, you will not work with any other online marketplace that works exactly like our online marketplace. It's like, okay, why are we even having this discussion then? Because there is no other anyway. (laughs) But like that really nearly blew up the discussions. They would not budge on that until we found this magical sort of nonsensical phrasing. And I've had that with a few other clients here and there, but again, that was sort of before it started. Yeah. Once we're through that. I did have, oh, that's right. That's right. I had something a few years ago where the way I charge for my courses is all per day. And the way I do that is I say it's per day for up to, in Israel, at least 16 people. More than 16 people, you have to pay me an additional amount per day. And I say, this is meant to discourage you from having larger courses because I want to have smaller courses and more interactions. So this company, basically, they stuffed a whole bunch of people in the room. I'm going to guess it was like 22, 23 people. And so I build them for that. And they said, no, we didn't have that many people there. I said, but you did. Oh, no, we did. You can't fit that many chairs in there. Fortunately, this company has people sign in each day that they come to a course. And I had photographed the sign-in sheet and I sent it to them and they said, oh, yeah, there were that many people. Of course, we'll pay you. End of argument. Once again, communication, a little some preparedness, and um, like anticipating these things can come in handy. Mm. But if I hadn't taken that photo, I would be just like out of luck because they were arguing, no way did it happen. But like, I think when you were talking about just now, do you leave them? Do you not? At the end of the day, if you've got a client where you're ghosting them, you're not answering their phone calls. Every time they call, you just roll your eyes and say, oh my God, I can't believe I have to deal with these idiots again. You don't have to deal with them. <laughs> like, <laughs> or you should try to, if you can't afford to leave them, work on making that attempt like work on getting toward there because work should not be this way. You should be happy to get calls from clients. You should have a good relationship with them. It should be interesting if not. So I guess to round things out, I'm kind of thinking to the things like, you know, how do you manage the conflicts like in the moment? And then probably be helpful, like to dive a little bit more into how you can avoid them because that's 
clearly the best solution is not to have them in the, yes. in the first place. So like in the moment when these things come up, what do you do or like what tips would you have for people? So you had written down some of our show notes here, like keep your cool no matter what. I'm not so good at that. I've gotten better. But as my family knows, like when I feel like I'm wrong, I can definitely get riled up. But that is very good advice to stay cool. I think what I try to do is, you know, couch in terms of like, look, I just don't think I can do that. And over the years, I've managed to get away with saying, look, I work with a lot of clients and no one else asks for this. And I'm sorry, this is like beyond my ability. If I could, I would, but it's just not something I can provide. And, and sometimes these clients will say, well, if you don't do X or if you won't agree to X, then we won't work with you. And I now have the leverage to say, okay. And that completely floors. That's like the nuclear weapon of negotiations, but it works, right? Basically saying, I'll walk if you don't agree. But when I've needed it, it's been very helpful. And they don't know how to handle that at all at all. Like they're like, well, okay, fine. We weren't that serious. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> yeah, it is easier said than done to keep your cool, especially if like somebody's being abusive. But at least I try to. It can be tricky, especially if you feel the adrenaline start to rush to you. But so for me over the years, it hasn't been all that common for there to be like actively abusive type situations, just more like unpleasant. And so I always try to maintain this attitude of I'm going to take in this input and feedback. And then in my head, I'm saying I'm probably going to fire you. But like for now, I'm going to make you happy. It's always this, I'm going to give in to you right now but I'm going to be figuring out how to negotiate this to something that's more favorable or advantageous to me. And I don't mean to make that sound like zero sum. It's not how I think of things. It's just more in the moment. I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear that you're upset. I get it. It's not the moment to state my case. I'm going to listen to you, probably go off, process that, and then figure out what to do next is what I try to do. So it's kind of like de-escalating. It's awfully hard, but if you know a client is telling you how badly you've done some things, I would suggest trying not to be defensive. Take that information as best you can in the moment. It's hard when the adrenaline is going, but give yourself a day or two and then unpack it and try to empathize with them. So if you gave them an estimate up front that the project was going to take 200 hours and you are on hour 400, However much it's justified, however much of a mess their legacy code base was, and on and on, however many times you told them X, understand that they still thought it was going to be 200 and now you're over twice the budget. So that empathy, trying to see things through their eyes, that doesn't mean do whatever they want. It just means try to get into their head a little, try to de-escalate process and then come up with something logical, I would say. Yeah, along those lines, like one of the things I learned, it took me a very, very, very long time to learn this, was when I saw that I was coming close to the budget or the hours to go to them and say, look, this is taking longer than I expected and then talk about it. Be as open as possible about it. Don't just say, I'll, I'll get it done and then they'll be so happy. No, they will not be happy about it because they're paying more than they expected and they have a budget and they had to get the budget approved and you know, God knows what else this is going to affect. One of my big clients once told me that every time I'm paid, it has to be signed off by seven separate people. Now, this is a big company, but yeah, they're doing that because they want to make sure that money just doesn't like doesn't float out of the company without them keeping track of it. All this makes sense. And also, in many cases, it's not just that they are a client of yours. They want you to succeed because if you succeed, they succeed. And so sometimes mm -hmm. I've managed to sort of turn these client relationships into them helping me do my work better. Mm -hmm. So they'll even do some work to help me out. So I have one client where I pitch new courses to them. 
and they say, great, let's try this out. We'll try for three times. We know that the first three times won't be as good as later on, but we're okay with pilot programs. And best case, they get a new course that works great. And we've had a few successes in the last few years. Worst case, they say, okay, we know that sometimes these things don't work out. So they're willing to be my guinea pigs and they get first dibs on my new courses. So it's like great for everyone, certainly great for me and even great for them. I just had someone earlier today email me who said, you know, the way that you do the automated testing in some of your courses is not so great. And I've got some of my employees taking those courses now. Would you mind if I boost up those tests and talk to you about them how, so they can be better? Yes. Now, at first, by the way, I got that email. I was really hurt. Really? He doesn't like it. And then I realized, no, he's offering to help me. Mm. So see the opportunity in these conflicts. See a way. If they want you to succeed, find a way for them to help you so that you can do better both for them and for others is, is what I'd say that. What about the preventative part? I mean, I think we've certainly touched on the point about making sure you get a lot of alignment on expectations. So I don't know if you want to like elaborate on that or you have other tactics for avoiding conflicts. I think regular communication is the key. If I were to do a long-term engagement again, it would come with a stipulation. I want to have weekly phone meetings. Got to do that. No way around that. I would also say even now, I have in the last few weeks changed how I do my email, like more of a sort of GTD kind of thing. And it's been a sea change. Hmm. And I now respond to people really quickly and they are noticing. And so when someone emails you and you email them back within a few hours, they notice, they're happy, they're going to be like less prickly about it. If you are like I have been for many years and like a week later, they'll email you again and say, hey, did you get this? You'll be like, don't bother me about it. Of course, I'm just going through my email. Yeah, that's not going to go well. So <laughs> I say from experience. So, I mean, I think aligning expectations is the biggest one. So a couple of pieces of tactical advice. One would be be clear up front about your engagement, what you're trying to do, how you're going to measure success. I think earlier we were talking about custom app dev. One of the things I've seen that you had alluded to doing requirements like in a training setting you can do with custom app dev which is here are my assumptions i'm going to have access to the code base so you can actually call out like what are the prerequisites for success make those clear make the kpi or kpis the engagement is going after clear the more you do that up front the less argument there's going to be over stuff as you go along so i think that's a big one the other thing i'll say is it's harder for custom stuff, but if you're flat pricing and closely scoping things and you have delivered a fairly predictable deliverable, like you're in productized service mode or productized consulting, something that you're doing repeatedly, then you have done it a lot before so you can guide the expectations and frame what's happening and kind of walk them through working with you. And you'll have a lot of like historical data for anything that comes up. And you're not going to be arguing over things that go off the rails with a lot of custom engagements like scope or billing terms or whatever. If you say, all right, pay me a deposit and then we get started and this happens. Well, now you're not going to be arguing over payment because you won't start unless they pay you. You're not going to be arguing over your billables because you don't have billables. You have a price. So making the engagement better defined kind of creates or like eliminates the opportunity to argue about things. One last thing I would say, and this is maybe the hardest one of all, but if you have runway and you have options, then you're not bluffing. You know, Reuven, you had mentioned a little bit ago, like the ability to walk away or just say like, this doesn't work. For those of you listening, it's a lot harder to do that when you really need to pay your mortgage. You can be firmer about your various requirements and defining the terms of engagement if you don't need the engagement. Now, obviously, you're going to need business at some point, but I would definitely say like a lot of 
the kind of conflicts, you'll be more confident in front-loading the rules if you don't need any given engagement. And then that front-loading of the rules prevents the conflict. So I would definitely have optionality if you can. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I absolutely agree. All right. With that agreeable discussion about disagreement, Eric, any uh, picks for this week before we finish up? I'm going to throw out the book that I mentioned there, which is the No Asshole Rule, it's called, just topically. Like, I think it's probably a good read for those of you who are aspiring business owners, like if you're going to have staff and or if you're maybe at some point going to be employed. It might not be quite as applicable for just like a solo freelancer, but it's an interesting read and it's pretty short. And I think there's a lot of value there in organizational theory. To just briefly summarize, he is talking about all the negative externalities of the talented jerk archetype. And so that has a lot of implications. You know, so he's talking about don't hire people that are like this, don't suffer clients like this, don't suffer anyone like this. So in employed context, I think this makes the most sense, but it's applicable to anyone in any, you know, scenario that you're in. So if nothing else, it might be a slightly cathartic read to read about somebody who won't put up with people being rude. But I found it to be an interesting short read, especially as I read it a couple of years ago as we were starting to grow our staff. That's very good. Yeah, I had someone working for me many years ago who was one of these like very smart jerks. And I was like, I mean, he was working for me. I said, well, you know, I guess he's okay, a little prickly around the edges. And I actually had someone call me up and say, I want to keep working with you. Just don't ever send him to me again. Like, not this guy. So when the bottom dropped out of the economy and I had to fire someone, he was definitely number one to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did I ever suffer for that long? I don't know. I don't know. So in the book, like, it's really interesting. He kind of makes a business case for this and says, like, you've got a talented jerk who performs, you know, whatever percent, like, better than the other employees, let's say. But have you started to factor up all the time that's spent with this person's coworkers going to HR? Like, the idea being, if you started to actually calculate the damage this person causes to the business it often way exceeds whatever incremental value they provide. So it isn't just this feel-good thing about like, you know, don't be rude. It's like a legitimate business case for not putting up with this type of behavior. I like that. Okay, now I'm definitely going to have to read it. So I'm also going to recommend a book. This is a fun one that I'm about halfway through at this point. It's called Lying for Money, How Legendary <laughs> Frauds Reveal the Workings of the World. It's by this guy named Dan Davies, who was an investigator for the Bank of England. And my impression is that he left there because he is not a company kind of guy. Like, he's very smart. He loves to tell stories. Boy, does he love to tell stories. But I can only imagine what the Bank of England is like. And it does not seem like he was cut out for them. And he basically, it's not just fantastic stories about all these frauds that have happened in finance over the last number of centuries. It's also, how do they happen? How are they allowed to happen? How is it that we are always subject to sorts of frauds, and he breaks them down. He has this very systematic way of thinking about it. And he basically says, you're always having a trade-off between business freedom and trying to find the fraud. And yes, you could find 100% of the fraud, more or less, but then you'd shut down the economy. So you need to always sort of have trade-offs. And he says, it's those gray areas, it's those trade-offs are where people take advantage because everyone's assuming that it's fine. And it's great. I'm really enjoying reading this book. And it's giving me some, uh, on the front cover, Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan, says, mm -hmm. if you want to learn to fend off fraud, read this. And if you want to commit fraud, don't. But if you absolutely must, first read this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great testimonial. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm definitely laughing and enjoying as I read about this. And it's pretty current. 
All right, folks, we're at the end of another episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you have suggestions, ideas, or questions, feel free to get in touch with us through our show page. And we will be back next week with another episode of The Business of Freelancing.